0: Apamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Maria. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Anne. Uh, thank you, John, who was Jisha before everyone in the Zendo in Austin, greetings today. Everybody on in the Cloud Zendo, I send you my greetings and people in Sister Sanghas and, and anybody who might come across this a recording of this talk later on. Thank you so much for, for sharing this time with me. You are a, a precious resource for the world of compassion and loving kindness and forbearance and sympathetic joy. I know this, I've I've gotten to experience this and you should remember it. Thank you again for sharing this time with me. I wanna talk about meditation practice and about life practice as antidotes to despair. And I'm gonna talk about some things that I find extremely triggering Uh, And I want to warn anybody who might be triggered by this, that that I'm going to be doing this. It has to do with the implications of of, uh, the rulings uh, by the Supreme Court, particularly on the Roe versus Wade uh, decision that happened in June. And uh, if that's, you know, if that would be terribly triggering for you, you might want to skip this for now. Uh, and otherwise, if you can, if you can be here with me, it would be a great, a great blessing for me. Um, I want to start by talking about meditation practice, and um, uh, experience that I've had, uh, I've been taking part for the last couple months, uh, more regularly with the, the group that meets on Wednesdays, the Appamata group that meets on Wednesdays called Zazen and Sharing. Which was uh, set up by Kim Mosley, I believe, and has been led most uh, regularly by Kim and by Ellen Hippard. Uh, and, Um and it's a wonderful opportunity for me uh, to be able to take part with it. Uh, for some time, that group has been working through uh, the book uh, "Training and I'm sorry, yeah, Training and Compassion: Zen Teaching on the Practice of Lojong" by Norman Fisher. And most everyone here is going to be familiar with that. But uh, um, it's one of his best books, I'll say. I've read it a couple of times. And and every time I read it, I find something new. Uh, Lojan Training, if you're not familiar with it, it's from the Tibetan tradition. And it comprises a whole life of, of practice um, in, in a very... Uh, zippy kind of a way. It's there's seven points and 59 slogans. And the, briefly the points are, uh, number one, resolve to begin. Number two, train in empathy and compassion. And that's both relative and absolute, uh, forms. Uh, number three, transform bad circumstances into the path. Uh, number four, make practice your whole life. Number five, assess and extend. Number six, uh, engage in the discipline of relationship, and number seven, live with ease in a crazy world. Um, each of those points has slogans under it, and some of them have a dozen, and some have only one or two, uh, and they, those slogans are very pithy and uh, full of surprises, such as, do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, pray for help or uh, slogan number 26, don't figure others out. Uh, Number 28, (laughs) abandon hope. Um, Number 29, don't make everything so painful. Number 43, observe, even if it costs you everything. Number 51, this time get it right. And finally, number 59, don't expect applause. Um, So as like I say, full of surprises and pithy. I got to substitute for for Ellen a, a few weeks ago, and to lead a sitting and and to share some reflections with others of uh, focusing on uh, point number four, which is uh, make practice your whole life. And under that, to focus on the first of two slogans that appears. Uh, under that point, and I, I'm going to skip the second slogan, I won't even bring it up. But the, the first slogan is cultivate a serious attitude. And Norman Fisher breaks that down uh, and shows how that is broken down in the Lojan practice into five sort of branches or strengths that amount to, to having a serious attitude. One is to remember uh, what we really want. As Flint says, that's what discipline is, is just to remember what you really want. Remember what we really want and to take ourselves seriously as spiritual beings. Uh, Norman Fisher suggests making up a kind of an elevator speech for yourself that you can come back to, such as, I can awaken. I am no longer committed to being stuck in my old limited views. Each moment is new and I can awaken in it. The second branch is familiarization or repetition. Uh, Building habits to make uh, our our self centered responses a little bit less automatic and our more open responses more easily accessible or at least rememberable. Uh, Norman Fisher says repetition is the true soul of spirituality. And every moment in meditation when you drift off. And you're thinking about something else and you come back you're doing what norman fisher says is the very essence of spirituality uh the branch three is called seeds of virtue and that is a recognition that we have within us and a noble heritage as human beings that we are the family of the buddha we are following in the buddha's path and we have that as uh, the opportunities that we can embrace for awakening are there for us all the time because of where we are and who we are. And that just as the sages and ancestors of old are guides for us, that as Dogen says, we will be the same for people in the future. It's an amazing thought to me. Branch number four is uh, given the name reproach, but this is not reproach in the normal sense that we do it, such as telling ourselves what failures we are. Uh, which, you know, oddly, uh, and paradoxically, uh, has such a big role in our own ego building project. This is reproach from the standpoint of the strengths outlined in the three previous branches, we can meet our slips into self centered habits from a place of generosity, love, hope and patience. Uh, We can meet them more spaciously, and not make the mistake of seeing that that's all we are. In in my own case, I'll say, seeing a flare up of temper at not getting my own way, it's, I have the opportunity to see it not as me, not everything in me, but as something arising and passing away. And in fact, in working with this over the last several weeks, I've just been astonished to say that I have a kind of simmering fury at you know, at everything I, I, I gave the example on a Wednesday of peeling a potato and feeling so frustrated. Oh, my God, I've got 10 more potatoes to peel. This is so tedious. Uh, you know, what and, and just to be able to turn to that part of me and say, just calm down. It's gonna this is going to be worth it. You're gonna have some peeled potatoes, it'll be good, you know, but just to just to recognize that part of yourself and to meet it, I mean, here they call it reproach, but it, but to more meet it with a, a kind of gentle holding that doesn't in, uh, allow it to take over. And finally, the fifth branch, aspiration. Uh, building on the four previous strengths, that would be aspiring to live by vow. Um, think of what we say on weekday mornings, Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it that's an amazing aspiration and one that's certainly worth remembering. So, um, you know, in, in uh, when we were first going through this, I talked about some things in my personal life and um, uh, ways in which this sort of practice has been, is and would be beneficial to me in the future uh, in meeting uh, my habitual responses to things like peeling potatoes and having a fight with my siblings and you know that sort of thing. But I have come to see that it, it can also have a role for me in meeting some much more serious challenges for me, some very, very much more, even, even more triggering things in those kind of family relationships and, and personal habits. Uh, so, and I'm thinking about how on June 24th of this year, the Supreme Court overturned the precedent of Roe versus Wade, uh, and, and, I began, and then this week, uh, I read a story in the New Yorker by the writer Gia Tolentino, who makes very clear the ramifications of the decision. She writes, Anyone who can get pregnant now must face the reality that half of the country is in the hands of legislators who believe that your personhood and autonomy are conditional, who believe that if you are impregnated by another person under any circumstances, you have a legal and moral duty to undergo pregnancy, delivery, and in all likelihood, two decades or more of caregiving, no matter the consequences on your body, your mind, your family, your life. Uh, So, in important ways, in most of the country, uh, a woman's uh, right to bodily autonomy no longer exists in the circumstances where she might be pregnant. Leave aside that members of the Supreme Court uh, said that as a body they plan to uh revisit, that is to do away with, the federal rights to same-sex marriage, to contraception, and to other things that are based on the concept of a right to privacy. Uh, that's bad enough, but what fills me with despair is how governments are getting set to criminalize a penumbra of activities around, uh, around abortion. This has already happened in Texas. Uh, where it is um, illegal to provide a ride, to provide financial support, to provide counsel, to provide information, to help other people cross state lines to uh, get to uh, a state where it would be legal to have an abortion. Um, And famously, if you're an Uber driver and you give somebody a ride to an abortion clinic, a vigilante can sue you for $10,000. Um, the internet and, and uh, uh, apps have exploded the dangers for pregnant women uh, who, who might want to uh, have an abortion and made it so that essentially they cannot avoid self incrimination period tracking apps which are apparently common and location data on smartphones can be hacked and sold and then subpoenaed as evidence credit card companies routinely sell records of transactions that can be traced to lead to a prosecution for illegal abortion lawmakers are already starting to set up border patrols whereas in case Texas, rewards for vigilante actions to criminalize anyone who provides support. Finally, and to me, as, as Ms. Tolentino points out, the most nightmarish ramification is the potential for the criminalization of all pregnancy and miscarriage. Tolentino writes, both abortion and miscarriage currently occur more than a million times each year in America. And the two events are often clinically indistinguishable. I've had family I have, and have had family members who have had abortions, I've have had and have family members who have had miscarriages. And the thought that the state is going to take an active role in monitoring These activities that are so personal is very triggering to me, very frightening to me. Uh, Tolentino describes state efforts to create databases of all pregnancies so that miscarriages can be scrutinized under criminal law. This country has long been hostile to women. Justice Alito, in writing his his decision on Roe v.ersus Wade, says that a right to, to abortion does not occur in the Constitution. The word "women" or "woman," words "women" and "woman," do not occur in the Constitution either. I remember my oldest sister, who later became an, an anti-abortion activist and uh, a, a very committed conservative. Uh, I remember in the 1960s, when as a divorced working mother with three small children, she could not get a credit card unless there was a male relative to sign for her in the case, in this case, my father, that seems pretty minor now, compared to a situation where half the population no longer has the, po- the right to make decisions based on personal bodily autonomy and where other people will be invited and even required by law to be to to exercise vigilante justice. So if you can tell, this is very triggering for me and I've been my thoughts have been churning and I've been flailing about what can I do? How can I even begin? I mean, I do the usual small things, but they don't amount, I don't think they amount to much. But what else is it can I do? And what has this got to do with my practice? What in the world can sitting on a cushion and staring at the wall have to do with that? But it, but again, I remembered this advice and this this, this Lojong training to be able to come back to making practice my whole life, even, even this. This seems like a lot to me. But you know, I'm as privileged as you can get. I'm a well off white man. I'm in a, you know, heterosexual relationship. I don't have any children or grandchildren who are likely to be affected by this directly. Privilege, privilege, privilege all the way down. And yet this is, this seems like a lot to me. And imagine, you know, being someone like the Dalai Lama, someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, forced to leave your home because of upheaval. Uh, and not all the, all the people and all the suffering in all the world. How is it possible that practice can help? So I want to, in in choosing this today, I want to focus not on practical things that we can do, but finding the, the the very energy that we need to be able to, um, to be able to keep going forward, and to have a sense that we can have an effect in this world, and that, and that our practice matters, and that we can—it can help us be of service to others and to all beings. So I want to—I want to. I, I should have mentioned this before. I'm sorry, Kim. Is it possible that you could bring some paper and writing implements for people in the zendo and, and folks? Can you take a couple minutes to find some paper if you don't have it, and a and a pen if you don't have it already? I just want to give you a brief writing prompt and ask you to write for a couple of minutes. And then if you're willing to to share uh, with the group what it is that you've written. As a writing prompt, please write down, make practice your whole life. whether or not you're you're triggered or moved in the same way as I was by the things I was just describing or if there are other difficulties on the path for you of any kind ask yourself how they can become part of your practice and can your practice help give you the energy you need to live by your vow it helps to remember that you have strengths, you have the capacity and to awaken, and you, you need to take that seriously. Like Norman Fisher says, give yourself a pep talk about it. And uh, second, how can you make mindful practice a familiar habit that can help you? And third, recognize that you have the noble heritage as part of Buddha's family as a human being. And if you reproach yourself, do it from a place of love and spaciousness. That turns a second arrow into an opportunity for awakening. And if you have an aspiration, let it be to connect with and support the awakening of all beings. So that's the prompt. Laurie, I see you waving. Did you have a question? You are muted. Ah, Say again.
0: Okay, I do have a question. So I missed half of what you said, it was way too fast for me. So could you just do the main question points that you wanted us to look at?
1: Uh, The main thing is, uh, how can your practice help give you the energy you need to live by vow? Whether or not you're focusing on what I was just reporting on that's so triggering and and staggering for me, or any aspect of your life that may be difficult. I mean, everybody is fighting a great battle. That's a fact. Uh, Think about it and think about it in terms of the strengths that you have, that you can take yourself seriously, that you can make mindful practice, a habit, something that builds on itself. That you can recognize your noble heritage. Here's this is, this is important, Laurie. Recognize your noble heritage. You are the same kind of human that the Buddha was. And if you reproach yourself, do it from a place of space and love. And finally, aspiration. Connect with and support the awakening of all beings. So the writing prompt is what I said at the beginning. Can your practice help give you the energy you need to live by vow? So please spend five minutes considering and writing. So on the question, can practice give you the energy you need to live by vow? Do you have anything to share? I see two participants have raised their hands. Maria first.
2: Yeah, I really liked these questions because, um, I mean, I, I just, shall I just write what I, say what I wrote or, um, Do you... I mean, my, my practice helps me to sit with the emotions that are stirred up in me, in, by, you know, that are stirred up by the reactivity in the world, by the injustice in the world. To calm, it, it helps calm the waters down so that I can see clearly it's like the diamond at the bottom of the pond, you know, when the water's stirring around, I can't see it. But when I sit and allow it to get still, I can see the diamond. I can see clear, more clearly. Um, rest, resting with each step of life, breathing and pausing, taking the learnings of my ancestors with me so that I do not add to the suffering. Everything is the path. Anything that, that stirs my soul must be given time to settle and allow me to, you know, if I don't allow, if I don't spend time with the practice, when I sit, it allows me to not add the suffering, because if I don't spend time with it, I'll just react. And that reactivity takes my energy. It strips me of any kind of sense of ability to To be in the world. I mean, I notice my energy gets depleted if I haven't sat or if I'm not attending to the practice. I sit every day and by sitting every day, it gives me time to just settle with everything that is, you know, however we evaluate it, however we see it, everything is the practice. Everything that comes my way, my daughter being ill, my mother being ill, you know, the abortion rules that are, you know, harming people is all the practice, it all stirs me and causes a reaction in me. If I don't sit with it, then what will I do? Where will what place will I be responding from? I won't be responding from a place of settledness. I'll just be replacing from the same place that everybody else that's causing harm is responding from. So for me it's absolutely essential that I sit and that I I read the teachings, that I learn from the ancestors. You know, because what they what they have to say in the teachings really guide me to just keep coming back to my breath, keep coming back, just keep coming back with every step. You know, the way I open the front door, the way I sit in my car, you know, is all part of my practice. It's like we never leave the meditation cushion for me. We're always in practice because the practice is every single minute of our day, you know, it's. um. It's, it's kind of like at first it was like just on the cushion and then I get up and carry on and now it's you know as, as you go along you, you recognize that every single thing is. The practice and to see it that way and to take everything as an opportunity to just come back and get still and then come from that place again so that's that's me anyway, <laughs> thank you.
1: In, um, thank you, thank you so much Maria. I'm, I'm reminded that in um, Ordinary Mind or one of her earlier books, Joe Quebec has a parable of a person who leads an enlightened life. And basically she says, an outsider couldn't tell. They're just, it's not what you do so much as the way you are approaching what you do and your openness to life as it is. And that that doesn't necessarily mean a lot of drama but as you as as you are describing like the the challenges that you have in your life being able to to draw on that for energy and solidity and composure even in an ever-changing environment that's a that's a wonderful lesson to share thank you very much
2: and to forgive ourselves whenever we we do go back off track and to just come straight back, don't spend time judging and evaluating ourselves, just come back again. And I always remember what um, Jung says that, you know, what is unconscious becomes our fate. So mm-hmm. it's really spending time. And that's what the practice helps us to do. It helps us to look at what's driving us, the unconscious habits and beliefs and helps them. When we sit, they come to the surface and we really get to see what it is we do. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's when we can see what we do, then we can do something different. We, we've got a choice then. We have space.
1: Yeah. And it may be so uncomfortable when they first come up, and so frightening.
2: Mm-hmm. And yet,
1: that is the path to freedom, just as you're pointing to.
2: Yeah, you feel like you're getting worse at first because you see everything. You're not getting worse. You're just seeing it. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like hang in there. <laughs> you know. Yeah, okay. and and get support from teachers and other sangha members. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel. And I'll bring Nelda down next.
1: Hi, Nelda.
3: Good morning. Good morning, Joel. Good morning, everyone. Well, everything Maria said, but um, that's not what came up first. (laughs) So I'm just going to read what came up. And uh, like you, Joel, I am... um, quite saddened by the result of Roe versus Wade. For those who don't know, I actually worked as a counselor at an abortion clinic many years ago for about four years and held many, probably hundreds of women's hands as they went through that truly difficult procedure. I I can't remember one that said, oh, this was a piece of cake. No, not a one. So um, this issue is as, as is every, Every aspect of our of our lives um, is touched by our practice. So I'll just read what I wrote and add everything Maria said. And Maria, by the way, thank you up for bringing up our shadow sides that hide in the dark and that need as much attention as our conscious sides, because they are the ones that sabotage us in our practice. So, like you, I'm very. I try to be very aware of those so that we can reach. Um, Reconciliation and work together, both the shadow side and bring them into the light and make them part of the practice. Thank you for bringing that. So what I wrote is, yes, my practice daily gives me the energy to live by vow. First and foremost, my practice teaches me balance, attained through wise insight that comes from sitting and sitting back long enough. Doing that, given the limited knowledge and personal skills I possess at the moment and under that set of circumstances, that wise balance is um, reflected in both self care and care for others, a balance of both. That balance also regards in my daily practice right effort that supports life and the ability to let go of the outcome. And that's hard for me. That's real really a practice edge because I have this construct that sometimes says, well, if I put this much effort, I should get this outcome. And that just isn't always how it works as all of the um, (laughs) volunteer activity with Roby Wade many years ago shows. It just doesn't always work out the way you think for as long as you hope. Um, My practice gives me balance when I practice between what I am wisely able to pick up and hold in my present container and what I really need to put down when my container isn't large enough or is already full. My practice gives me balance to remember, to know that I will continue to make mistakes, lots of them. I don't even wanna go there sometimes, that I'm gonna fall off that horse over and over and over again that sometimes it's going to be really uncomfortable when I do and that I need to get right back up as soon as I can. Um, And it also informs my energy in being able to both conserve my strength to approach things that require strength with an equal amount of tenderness. And, and know the balance between the two. Currently, given Roe v. Wade, and this is the last thing I have, I am sitting with Roe v. Wade, trying to balance my current construct, that is, that peaceful, respectful, civil disobedience is one of the greatest current, and I say current because we keep losing thing after thing in this country. And so, like Roe v. Wade, I don't know if Peaceful, respectful, civil disobedience will always be, but currently is, one of the greatest privileges we have. And um, I tend to exercise that. I intend to.
1: I see Joan Harman, hi Joan.
0: Uh, Hello, Um, like Maria said, you know, it's important to slow down and uh, I have to remember to use my practice instead of just pushing things aside and and going on through. And one of the things I recognize when I'm triggered is that I am caught in my self-centered perspective. And uh, I try to start expanding my view. How might others uh, with a different perspective be considering this? How could they possibly see it the way they appear to be seeing it? And then I work on having compassion for them and myself as we muddle through life trying to live in a worthy way. And that
3: compassion
0: provides the nourishment uh, to deal with my hurt and, and grief. And that's how I use my practice. Can I, can I add on to that? that? Yeah, no. So one of the things that came up for me was that uh, my practice um, allows me to look turn towards difficult questions and so hey you know in the case of abortion isn't a human life involved i mean that's the other side of the argument Um, i am pro abortion but I, i have been really thinking hard about that and similar to what joan said like how is it that other people might have this belief and hold to it with other moral conviction and my practice lets me think about that and get close to that without uh, uh, being afraid myself, being defensive.
1: Those are critical points that you're both making. Thank you.
2: And John Mueller would like to speak.
1: Please. Hi, John. I can hear you.
4: Um thank you so much, Joel, for sharing what you did. The first thing I wrote down is I have to get the Norman Fisher book right away so that I can look at all these different things, including being kind to myself because I don't like my views. And just go back to basics, my practice at this point, and I told this to Peg and I think Flint, is my relationship with my husband who's 93. And so that gave me a focus to not worry about things I can't control. And yet I think I'm really committed to people having individual rights for their own bodies. I had the choice at one point when I was an older mother and was pregnant whether or not to have a child or not. I'm so grateful that we had that choice to make. And our choice was to have our son who is a wonderful human being, but I would promote, I would support anybody in that difficult decision. But basically I need to go back and look at Norman Fisher so I have some points to talk to myself about. That's all I can say, but thank you so much for making this uh, apparent to us, how to, how to look at life with this interesting and almost not cheeky, but quick, you know, as you said, short little things to, that are really powerful. And I thank you so much. And I'm glad you're able to participate from far away. Good luck to you.
1: Thank you, John. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here with us, Bill. So uh, I see Kathy has just raised her hand. Good
5: morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Joe. I'll just spend a little bit of time. uh, When I was a nursing student, my first OB patient was a 12 year old. And Today I know that uh, what she told me was that uh, she got pregnant by kissing. He had no idea, and what I know today is that most likely it was incest that was going on that she couldn't even look at. So it's it's um, a topic that not only triggers uh, something for me, but um, wants me to go to action, probably quicker than I need to be. And uh, I know that I have to be very careful in what that action is, and to be wise. Uh, yesterday, I heard someone talk about you um, see if I can find it. Uh, Dogen, to realize the way is to become intimate with all things. And we don't get to choose very often. Sometimes we do. Uh, but things just appear. And what happened in my life recently was that something appeared and I Dug my heels in. I did not want to see what someone was saying. And um, it really bothered me. And I did meditate and I wrote and everything else. And what I realized uh, was that I needed to talk with um, somebody that was very trustworthy in my life and that also knew the substance of what happened, uh, knew the situation for 40 years anyway. And uh, she said the same thing that someone else said, but I could trust her. And she also used different language that um, didn't, the language wasn't as um, pointed, I guess I should say. So what I know is that I have to be aware and sometimes i I need to be um, especially like sitting with people in Zen and know that I am with people that um, bring bring me a sense of connection and that feeds me and um, and so compassion is is a big part of it compassion and love first for myself and also um looking at what my body is saying because the gap sometimes that happens happens in my head <laughs> and and it's my body that speaks the truth and um and i when I went through this process, all of a sudden I had this burst of energy the next day. <laughs> and it didn't weigh me down, and my body was so content. And uh, so that's a big part of how I know that I'm probably going in the right direction. This, this feels wise. So that's what I have. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Timekeeper, mm-hmm. shall we close with our ceremony?